Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. In Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 to 11. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Good afternoon. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we're glad that you could join us for Sunday service today. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, we're in a sermon series called uh, The Lord's Prayer. This, then, is how you should pray. And um, uh, the reason for why we're in this sermon series, well, John Calvin, our great Protestant reformer, said that prayer is the perpetual exercise of faith. So it means that if you're a Christian with any integrity of faith, uh, you're someone who prays. And that's why Jesus tells us when we pray, that we should shut the door and pray to our Father who hears us in secret because the things that we do in secret says a lot about the things that we value and love. Well, this week we're talking about lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Last week we preached on uh, praying for forgiveness for past sins. Well, this week we're preaching on praying protection for future sins. And uh, we're going to spend just a little bit of time talking about the first part of this prayer, lead me not into temptation, and then we're going to spend the bulk of our time on that second part of the prayer um, and deliver us from evil. But first, the, the first part of the prayer, lead us not into temptation. Look at that word temptation with me. Now, in English, we know that temptation means enticement to sin, but in Greek, that word is actually more neutral, and it translates more trial or testing. But that could present a problem in understanding this prayer. Because if you translated, lead me not into temptation, uh, you have to ask the question, what, why are we asking God to do something he wouldn't do in the first place? God doesn't tempt us. We're told that in James 1.13, right? Uh, no one can say that when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So we don't want to translate it that way, but if we translate it, trial, lead me not into trial, that also presents a problem because why would we pray that God would do something um, that he actually likes to do time to time? Uh, we're told in James 1, 2, count it joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So is it lead me not into temptation or is it lead me not into trial or testing? What are we trying to get at here uh, what is the heart of this prayer? One commentator says it this way. Here's another paradox in scripture, he says. We know that trials are our means for our growing spiritually, morally, and emotionally. 
Yet we have no desire to be in a place where even the possibility of sin is increased. Even Jesus, when he prayed in the garden, first asked my father, it is, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, before he said, yet not my will be done but yours. He was horrified at the prospect of taking sin upon himself, yet was willing to endure it in order to fulfill the will of his father. Our proper reaction to times of temptation or trial is similar to Christ's, but for us, it is primarily a matter of self-distrust. When we honestly look at the power of sin and at our own weakness and sinful propensities, we shudder at the danger of temptation or trial. This petition is another plea for God to provide what we in ourselves do not have. It's an appeal to God to place a watch over our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our feet, and our hands, that in whatever we see, hear, or say, and in any place we go and in anything we do, that he will protect us from sin. So what we're trying to get at here and what Jesus is instructing about the heart of this prayer is that it's all about a distrust of yourself when face-to-face with temptation or trial, meaning that this prayer acknowledges that our sinful desires are enough to make us fall on our own and we don't want to be placed in any position where we need to test that we're asking protection from the enemy but the enemy in this instance is ourselves Uh, this part of the prayer takes seriously uh, the idea that we are our own worst enemies now If the first part of this prayer recognizes that we ourselves are our own worst enemies, the second part of this prayer, deliver us from evil, recognizes that we ourselves are not our only enemies. That is to say that there are forces that would love to see us fall in temptation and sin. Uh, James 1.14 says, but each one is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires, meaning that we can't blame our sins on somebody else and say he made me do it but simultaneously there are forces at work that will influence you and make you more susceptible to sin and they are evil and that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of our time today the second part of this uh, petition but deliver us from evil but first to do that we need to put a face on evil and then afterwards we're going to talk about the strategies of evil And then thirdly, we'll talk about the deliverance or our protection from evil. And so we'll talk about the face of evil, the attacks of evil, and the deliverance from evil. When I say the word evil and tell you to put a face on it, what do you think about? Maybe you think about masked gunmen's or world dictators, or global terrorists, or psychotic villains without any inhibitions. But what if I asked you to now put a face on supernatural evil? Maybe you think the first things that come to mind are, you know, that dark presence from the white noise from your TV, or the feeling you always get walking down the hallway in your building like someone is behind you. Um, Or maybe you think stranger things. Uh, The truth is that for us, our concept of evil really just comes from cinema. Uh, That is to say, our conception of evil is really relegated to the categories of cinematic caricatures. 
Um, our perception of supernatural evil is pretty weak then, and it's because our, our ideas and conceptions of supernatural evil um, are really a product of consumption after our own imaginations. But the Bible presents to us a world that is supernatural, and that, that evil that exists in this world is not some fuzzy abstraction, but they're personal beings of a spiritual nature with extraordinary capabilities. They're not feelings or auras or dark ambiences, but real, living, spiritual beings whose sole occupation for ages has been pride, hatred, and murder. So who are these personal beings? Well, the simple answer is they're fallen angels. They're fallen angels. God created the heavens and the earth, we're told, in the beginning of the Bible. And when he did that on the sixth day, he created humans in his own image. But he also created a second class, another class of beings, and they were angels. And both classes were created by God to serve his holy purposes. Now, angels, this other class of being, they're spiritual beings, meaning that they're invisible and they don't have, they're invisible to us, and they don't have physical bodies. But but they are personal beings, meaning that they have personhood with moral and emotional judgment like we do. And they've been employed by God through various times in history as messengers or ministering aids. Uh, think the birth of Jesus when the, the, the angels harked and heralded the coming of the king. Um, we, we also see that in scriptures that they're used by God as sort of guardians or sentry posts um, over governments. So if you remember in Genesis when uh, Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, and what does God do? He posts up two guardian angels to block the way to the tree of life. Um, and also they've uh, been employed by God as spiritual militants. But there was one angel in particular, and he was the most brilliant and beautiful angel of them all. And traditionally his name has been called Lucifer, which means day star or the bright one, the brilliant one. And we think that Ezekiel 28 tells the story of Lucifer's fall when it says, you were the signet of perfection, O day star. You're full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. And that's why we think that Ezekiel 28 is talking about Lucifer. Every precious stone was your covering, it says. You were anointed as a guardian cherub that he was blameless in his ways till unrighteousness was found in him. His heart was proud because of his beauty. So God cast him to the ground from heaven. Now when Lucifer was cast out of heaven, he actually took with him an entire division of the hosts of God's angels and thus began his war against God and his people in his pride and hatred and continues that war even to this day. Now, he has many other titles. Um, he's the adversary. Another word is Satan. That's what it means, adversary. The father of lies. He's the ancient serpent. He's the prince of this world. He's the god of this world. He's the evil one, the tempter, the angel of light, because he poses to know the truth. And he's also called the devil. Now, what do you think of all that? I mean, that seems pretty fantastical, right? Um, if you're a Christian today, and you're here sitting in service, and you just heard that, maybe, maybe you're saying, you know, that's actually one of the reasons why it's hard for me 
to know what I believe because if I believe in Jesus, I also need to believe in all this other stuff that the Bible says, including what it says about angels. Um, and it's hard for me to do that. I've never seen an angel, right? Except for my spouse or whatever, right? Um, but then if you're a non-Christian and you're sitting here today and you hear about this stuff and you're like, this is exactly why I can't believe in Christianity because I have to, it's the same reason that we have a hard time believing. These things are of myths and of primitive man. Satan and fallen angels don't exist. But if you think Satan and demons don't exist, the Bible would say that you're at a proper disadvantage. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a book that many of us will know, and it's called Screwtape Letters. And the book is about the senior demon called Screwtape and through correspondence letters to a rookie demon called Wormwood is giving him advice about how to be a good demon. And this is what he writes. You'll find it in your bulletin on the first page. This is what Screwtape says to Wormwood. My dear Wormwood, I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of your own existence. That question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered for us by the high command. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it is an old textbook method of confusing them. He therefore cannot believe in you. You know, we'll talk more about Satan's attacks in just a minute, but could it be that one of the most formidable attacks or tactics of Satan, if he existed, was to camouflage himself so well into the caricatures of our minds that he becomes invisible to us? You know what that sounds like? That sounds like the perfect opportunity for ambush. Uh, it's said that when walking in tiger country, what you need to be most careful about are sneak attacks from behind because tigers stalk their prey with stealth. But they also say that you'll not be attacked if you see the tiger before the tiger sees you. So one of the best defenses against a tiger is to face it and to lock eyes with it uh, because the most serious kind of enemy is the kind that you can't see. Um, because he's made himself invisible. And that's why putting a face on evil and calling him out and seeing him for who he is is a matter of either eternal danger or eternal safety. Otherwise, Roger Verbal Kent in The Usual Suspects will be right when he said in the movie, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Make no mistake, the face of evil is Satan and his demonic angels. Now, secondly, the, the attacks of the evil one. We might think, again, according to the caricatures of Satan in our minds, that Satan attacks physically and frontally uh, through dementor-like creatures, like from Harry Potter, who wear ghastly and tethered clothing or bedsheets and float through the air and alleys and tunnels who suck the happiness and life out of us. And yes, 
the, the horrific truth is that Satan and his demons have been known to possess and to control and to torture their subjects. But Satan's primary means of thwarting the holy purposes of God for his people today is through subtle deception and damning accusations. That's primarily how he works. But this isn't anything new or surprising. This actually was his MO from the very beginning. If you'll turn to the middle of your bulletin, you'll find Genesis 3.1, and I'll read that for us again. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You know, Satan is a deceiver and he's a liar, but he does it with subtlety. That word, the serpent, was crafty. That word crafty actually means subtle. Um, And all he said was, did God really say that? All he does is raise reasonable doubt about God and the goodness of what he said. And Eve suddenly has a hard time remembering what God said. Because Eve says that God commanded that they should not eat from the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall they touch it lest they die. But can I ask you guys a question? Did God say that? Did God say that? You just look a few, few verses before in Genesis 2, verse 16, and this is what God said. He said, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Did you catch the difference there? Eve forgot two things about what God said. The first is this. Eve says, You shall not eat from the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But did God say that? Did God say that you can't touch the tree? You can't touch it? You can't go near it? No. You see what Eve is doing. Because she forgot the word of God, she now is filling it in, adding to the law of God. She's being a good legalist. Secondly, the second thing that she forgot was, she says, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But is that what God said? No. God said, you shall surely die. And this part gets lost in translation a little bit. So let me tell you that this is what's going on here. When God said, you shall surely die when you eat of this fruit, he uses this word in the Hebrew called muth, which means death or die. But he says it twice. He says muth, muth. And the way that we translate that is, you shall surely die. You're really going to, I'm not kidding, you're really going to die. That's the gist of that. It's for emphasis. But when Eve repeats the command of Jesus, she only says muth once. And you can kind of translate that as we're just only going to die or we're only going to get hurt or something like that. You see what Eve is doing. Because she forgot what God said, she actually, at the same time that she adds to the law of God, she actually relaxes the law of God. She's being a good antinomian. There's a big fancy word, anti, against, nomos, which is law, which is somebody who says that you don't need God's moral law because you have grace and forgiveness in Christ. So live however you want because God will forgive you later. That's what an antinomian is. She's a legalist and at the same time she's an antinomian because why? She forgot what God said. 
You see, Satan is a deceiver. He wants to see you forget what God said. And that's how we should conceive of actually spiritual battle here in this world. That it's a battle of, for your mind and the remembrance of what God said. 2 Corinthians 10.3.5, it's in your booklets. It says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, is what it says. And notice how subtle the serpent is. He doesn't come breathing fire, carrying a pitchfork, but he deceives us by using the familiar language of God's own words. So familiar that we can't tell the difference between the real and the counterfeit. And in our day and age, the counterfeit of God's word has become the real thing. Word of God has become the counterfeit. And are you, then, able to tell the difference? And do you know why the world can't tell the difference? Because we're told in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. If the enemy has infiltrated and influenced the hearts and mind and consciences of people to the point where they can't tell the difference between their right hand and their left hand, now this is the reason why Jesus teaches us to pray this prayer. That the, the cry of this prayer would be that we would throw up our hands, get on our knees, and cry for deliverance. Deliver me from the evil one. The cry of this prayer is as such, God, I don't quite remember what you said. And it's because I can't quite remember the last time I read the Bible and understood it. And I have doubts about what you said. I can't answer questions from skeptics, let alone my own questions. Sometimes I'm unsure of what I even profess to be true. Help me, deliver me, because I'm in a really bad spot. Now, the sermon at this point is not about to beat it over your head. Now, that's why you should read your Bible. Because why? Uh, since when did that work? We've been hearing that for all our lives. Because we know that when we hear the law of God, it doesn't actually give us the power to obey it. It only reveals, it reveals our weakness to do it. But then we're stuck. If we don't read our Bibles, then we won't remember what God said but then the law doesn't work either because we don't have the obedience required uh, to perform it. What is the deliverance that we need to combat the word of Satan? And the answer is the real and true word of God. You know, the best way for us to remember God's word again was for the word of God to take on a face in flesh. John, in his gospel, says this in his prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overwhelmed it. 
and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The best way for, the, for us to remember the word of God was for the word of God to, to become the living word. Now imagine with me for a second if I had three ants in my hand and I wanted to communicate to them that I hold them in my universe on the palm of my hands and their fate is just solely determined by me. Now I can't just shout at them because then they would go deaf. And I, and I could just kind of rumble my hand and just kind of show them that I'm here, but they would only think that it's an earthquake. The best way for me to communicate to these ants that I'm here and that I care is for me to become an ant myself and to communicate and to write myself into their story. And that's exactly what's happened with Jesus, who is and has become the living word. He came and he said things like, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Meaning that he had come to help us remember the word of God by showing us true obedience in action so that he could provide what we couldn't provide ourselves. And do you know why Jesus was able to teach us to pray and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil? Because just two chapters before our text today, uh, Jesus was led into the desert for temptation, the temptation that we should have faced. We're told that actually he was led there by the Spirit of God to be tempted by the devil, which tells us that it was God's plan and his will that the Son of Man should face temptation that our first parents did. You remember the story, Satan first tempts Jesus to turn stone into bread because after 40 days of fasting, uh, or fasting and praying in the desert, he would have been famished to the point of delirium. Satan was basically saying this when he said that. Why should the Son of God, the living word, the King of all kings, which is who you are, suffer hunger pains? Your hunger and thirst is incompatible with your identity as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. So turn these stones into bread. But you know how Jesus replies back. He replies back with the word of God. And he says it's written, man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus shows in his reply that there, that, that there is true satisfaction and everlasting life uh, that comes from the goodness and promises of God's word and abiding by it. You remember next that Satan takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and says, throw yourself off because, again, Satan knows God's word and he quotes Psalm 91. And he says, he will give his angels charge concerning you. And they're going to swoop in and fly in and, and save you so that your feet don't touch this, the, the stone on the bottom. And basically, the temptation here is to prove the word of God is true, uh, that God will do what he said. But you know how Jesus replies, again, with the word, as the living word. He says, you should not put the Lord your God to the test, teaching us by his, his example that when you test God, you doubt God. And when you doubt God, you don't trust God. And when you don't trust God, you're sinning against God. This is just like the Garden of Eden all over again. This is what G uh, Satan desires, to see Jesus sin against God by putting his word to the test. And finally, with his last pretensions taken off, Satan 
into the highest mountain in the world and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and its glory and says basically this, all these things I will give you if you worship me. And Satan's basically saying this here, let me get to the point, Jesus, because this is where I wanted to get to anyway. Uh, you already are the Lord and the king of all kings. I know that. I know that my time is limited. You are the son of God. I also know that God says in Psalm 2, ask of me, and he's talking to you, Jesus, that if you ask of me, I will give you nations as your heritage. See, I know that, that God is going to do that. But you know what? I could give you that now and for a cheaper price. That is, you don't have to suffer and die for sinners who hate you anyway to inherit what's already coming to you. I can give it to you now. So just bow down and worship me because after all, I am the prince of the world. And to this, Jesus replies, be gone, Satan. For it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And with these words at the end of his life, he goes to the cross so that he could be obedient to his father's will and to his word. And what was God's will that damned sinners like you and me should be adopted as the everlasting children of God? It's in him the word, the living word who bled and died on the cross for us who silences the accuser. It's the word of God, Jesus Christ, who's the one who delivers us from the evil one. You know, this past week I was preparing for this sermon and um, first, it was so random, but I started thinking all of a sudden about my past sins and particularly my college days. Um, and it was so random that I don't think that it was random. Uh, I, I started thinking about my college days and the sins of my past, maybe, maybe some of us relate, hopefully only a few of us relate. Um, but I started to hear in the conscience of my own mind, you're a pastor, aren't you ashamed of what you've done? Because do you remember that weekend, your freshman year? Do you remember that other weekend, your freshman year? You're dirty, Brian. You're, that's shameful. There's no way that you can do the work of God being such a sinner like yourself. At the same time that I heard that in my mind, I also heard my pride kicking up too. Uh, no, you have what it takes to be a pastor. You went to the same seminary as Tim Keller and Kevin DeYoung, right? You have what it takes. You're, you're ministering at Exilic Church, a New York City church. And if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Uh, whenever you hear, and clearly I knew that were lies, and when you hear accusations like that, you know that the devil is near. And I literally had to put my face in my hands um, and weep in the confusion of my conscience. And, and, and it was at a point where I had this like writer's block in the sermon. And I was like, you're right. I, I, I. But in the emotional pit of condemnation and the confusion and disarray of my conscience, I heard a small and faint word and started remembering this word I heard 
that I heard what it seems like was many years ago, and it was the sermon that I heard at my ordination service. And the preacher who was my home church uh, pastor, he preached on this word um, from the triumphal entry of Jesus when he enters the city of Jerusalem, uh, going to the cross that last week of his life. And the sermon, the gist of the sermon was basically this. It was, uh, in that story, there are two characters, Jesus and the donkey. Brian, guess which one you are. And I remember my home church pastor looking me straight in the eyes, and I was like, well, I know that I'm not Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) And he looked me in the eyes, and uh, I heard God's word again afresh. And it was as if he was saying, Brian, it's not about you. But you know, Brian, all who I am is for you, was for you, still continues to be for you because I know your name because I named you. And again, just randomly, I I started thinking about this song that we sing here where it says, I am chosen, not forsaken, What does it say? I am who you say I am. And I started to sing that in my heart, and then I just finished the sermon with great peace in my heart, great assurance of God's love for me, that I am chosen, that I'm not forsaken, and that I am what he says I am. Uh, Look with me in your bulletins, the first page. Kevin DeYoung, speaking of, he says this, Satan is an accuser and a deceiver. In both cases, his weapons are words, which is why we must overcome him with the word of our testimony. In other words, it's through our belief in the gospel and our confidence in the power of Jesus Christ that we can stand secure in the face of Satan's lies and accusations. And it is by the truth of the word of God, believed on and hoped in, even unto death, that we can expose and destroy the deceptions of the deceiver. This is how we do battle, with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So we need to silence the accuser. Whenever we feel doubts like that, uh, we need to silence him with the word of God in Christ, who is the word of God. And so when, evil, when the evil one would come at you with lies and condemnation, we need to come back with him with a word of our testimony. So when you hear Satan accuse you, for instance, and condemn you with the sins of your past, maybe the sins of your today. Uh, This is what we need to say. Uh, Satan, I know, actually. I know that I'm more horrible and corrupt than I even know myself right now. But you know, at the same time, I'm also loved and cared for more than I know right now in Jesus Christ. And especially regarding my righteousness or my unrighteousness for that matter, For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Quote it back to him. When you hear the lies, your prayers aren't enough. What does it do for you? Why do you pray? They're weak, they're pathetic, they don't yield any fruit, they're faithless, so stop praying. When you hear those words in your conscience, say this, I know. I know my prayers are weak and pathetic and utterly faithless, but you know what? I have the prayers and intercessions 
of the great high priest who sits at the right hand of God right now who pleads my case for me. And I also have the Holy Spirit indwelling me who also intercedes for me in my weakness. So even if my prayers fail, I know theirs won't. When you're tired and you're lonely on the subway, commuting back to work after a really horrible day, and you're hearing voices like, see, your life isn't mounting to much, is it? Pray to God, Isaiah 40, 29, that says, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. When you feel distant from God, and maybe you have been for many, many seasons, and you feel discouraged in the vicious cycle of your sin, hit Satan back with Romans 8. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Resist the devil and he will flee from you by the power of God's word. I want to close with a very quick story, and it's about Billy Graham, that uh, very famous evangelist in the 20th century. And there's a story of Billy Graham and his wife. They're going to bed. It's late at night, so they're getting under the covers, and they're getting ready to go to bed when they hear this rustling downstairs um, in their kitchen. And so his wife kind of elbows him and says, go, go see what that is. And so Billy gets out of his covers, and he goes down the stairs, and you know, it's, 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 it's night, and he's turned off the lights in his house, and so all he sees are shadows and lights. And in the far corner of his dining room and that far chair at the dining table, he sees this mysterious but dark figure sitting there. And you know what Billy Graham said? He said, oh, it's just you, Satan. And then he just went upstairs, and then he went to bed. That's it. I want to tell us that because I know that I've talked about maybe like scary things or, or things maybe beyond us, things that are more powerful than us. But no, he who is greater, he who is in us is greater than the one who's in the world. And it's when we know that word of God that we can have a confidence like our, 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 our friend, right, and our brother Billy Graham did. And to say, oh, it's just you, Satan. To know that by the power of God's word, that the enemy is fangless now, that he can't do us any harm. Let's take great courage this week in the face of trials and temptations to know the power of God's word. I want us, Exilic, for us to be a church that prays boldly, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, trusting in the word of God who bled and died for us. Let's pray. Father, we look forward to the day when one day we will hear those eternal words from Revelation 12. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Help us to know in our prayers 
that though the grass withers and the flowers fade, that the word of our God endures forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.